Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman with Joe Gerard back for the third week of this here version of the podcast. We'll have our first guest coming up in a little bit. Uh, but Joe, this is um, this is going to be a tough one, man. Um, I don't know where you're at right now, but as we sit recording this a little afternoon Eastern time on Thursday, uh, it was just announced that the NBA is uh, basically suspended indefinitely right now. Uh, they will resume the playoffs at some point. Um, and this is all, of course, on the heels of what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. First, the police shooting of Jacob Blake, and then two protesters shot by a 17-year-old uh, with an AR-15, which is just a hell of a sentence to say out loud. And um, this, of course, is after the summer of protests that have been going since June and, and George Floyd's murder. And like we're still going to do uh, the segments of the show, and, and we'll try to leave you at the end of the show feeling good with our, our, our look good, feel good, do good segment. But honestly, man, like I'm just... I, I, I'm in a weird place right now, and I felt like if I don't just say that off the top and as we lead into this discussion, uh, I'd be being disingenuous, and um, it's also why I'm grateful to have a podcast where I get to unload into a microphone um, because sometimes it's just it's needed, and for me, it's like freaking therapy. Yeah, it's uh, good to see you, Craig. Uh, and you too. Always good to see you. And it's uh, it's been a, a kind of a wild week, um, you know, just with a lot going on, and you know, just kind of all around. You got the RNC this week, uh, and I'm sure you've been kind of catching uh, a little bit of that. By the way, we have a massive hurricane currently hitting uh, mm. the southeast part of this country, and in uh, in parts of Texas and, and and a whole bunch of Louisiana that I'd like to kind of discuss and, and hopefully uh, our friends and family down there are, are, are taking uh, shelter and, and, and are safe. Uh, luckily, as of now, it has uh, diminished into a Category 1. When it hit land early this morning, it was a 4. And and I'm sure you've seen some video uh, on Twitter and social media. Just the winds were just devastating. And, of course, you know, uh, what all coming down yesterday in the NBA, and, and not just the NBA, Craig, you know, Major League Soccer stepping up, Major League Baseball stepping up. So, uh, yeah, WNBA, you know, of course, WNBA, always leading. Yeah, they're always leading. I, I love that. So, you know, kind of a, a few things to discuss uh, in today's episode. Yeah, and let's actually let's start out of order um, a little bit. I, I want to start with our soundbite. So, uh, let's go ahead and hit the clip. Hit the f- clip. What stands out to me is just watching the Republican convention and this feeling this fear, right? Like. All you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. We're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. We've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's it's amazing. Why we keep loving this country, and this country does not love us back. Joe, I think this statement from Doc Rivers, coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, a man who is the son of a police officer, who as a player in the 1990s had his house burnt down because he had the audacity to marry and have kids with a white woman. One of those kids, by the way, Austin Rivers, now an NBA player, um, 
one of those other kids, by the way, Callie Rivers, his daughter, married to an NBA player and Seth Curry. Uh, I, I think that captures it about as well as you possibly can, not just the perspective, but the emotion. And I was moved on the verge of tears watching Doc Rivers. I was moved to the verge of tears watching Mike Wilbon on Pardon the Interruption yesterday, watching Chris Webber former NBA player on Inside the NBA, uh, which went from, hey, we're going to do a pregame show to, okay, we're going to react to what just happened, these games being postponed as the NBA players strike. And by the way, I'll take this quick moment as an aside. If you want more on this, I can't recommend enough my, my friend Clinton Yates's column on this that's out in the undefeated. Um, but this is this is a strike. This is not a boycott. They're not boycotting basketball. This is a labor strike, and it's a strike with a purpose. And specifically, it's a wildcat strike. They walked out yesterday. But when you talk about the emotion that you, you see as you literally have black men, black men who have beaten the odds of America being stacked against them in all of the ways that are, are overcomable, um, as so many have. And it's become easier to overcome as time has gone on. I'm not denying that. But there's still incredible odds that, that black people face in America, and these men have overcome it. They, they are now in positions, whether it be Wilbon as a journalist, Doc as a, as a former player and now for 20-plus years a, a head coach in the NBA, for Chris Weber, who was a, a, as a Hall of Fame player and is now a, a high-profile broadcaster, to sit in those positions of quote-unquote privilege, of power, where they have a, a platform and a voice, and to, to basically cry for Mike Wilbon to go, what what is the point? What do we want? We want them to stop shooting us. Like, and I guess what as I, as I've talked about this with some friends, and you know, we've been going on our group text all day for humans, not hashtags. And the thing that really struck me in in talking to my friends, and the thing that I just kept coming back to is like, if you don't get it by now, like, what the fuck? Like, on the most baseline level, like. June and what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder was a wake-up call to say, you have two choices. You can be racist or anti-racist. And if you read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, which I'm in the middle of reading right now, that's a point he makes immediately in the book that I think is one of the most powerful things. Like, the United States is a system that was built from its foundation, both with, both of these things can be true, both with unlimited hope and potential and white supremacy. It was built on both, that all men were created equal, but also some men were three-fifths of a person and counted only for population and couldn't own land and had no rights. And in June, as so many people learned so much about how we got from that founding to where we are right now, it was a wake-up call to say, like, you can either perpetuate this system, perpetuate the indignities and the inequities in our society, or you can actively fight against them. And so what I felt like this week is all this stuff has come to a head again in the most public way possible in the middle of a Republican National Convention that is just filled with outright lies and bullshit and fear-mongering and no responsibility for the types of things that are happening is it's this feeling of like I thought we talked about this. Like I I feel like what my parents felt like when I was a kid and I just wouldn't listen. It's like Hey, dummy, I thought we talked about this. Don't do that. And yet here we are again. And I also, 
as I feel on some level as a white person exhausted by this. Like, I just can't imagine what it's like to be black. But we would also don't have to imagine because people like Doc Rivers, people like Chris Webber, people like Mike Wilbon, and so many others in and outside of sports, in and outside of the public eye, are telling us and have been telling us for literally centuries. And I just, I don't understand why there are people that still push back and they won't listen. Yeah, I mean... When is enough enough, I guess? Do we have that answer? No one seems to have these, I don't know, these moments because we, we do these marches, we do these protests, and it really meant something when we, we know when we started doing them in late May and June and into July during a pandemic. And the stance that the NBA and WNBA and others took yesterday is so strong that you know, it, every everyone kind of stopped in their tracks to see, okay, now, you know, th- we've really had enough. And and I say that because now it comes down to, as always, Craig, money, the financials. Because once the NBA stops, that means the networks lose money. And when the networks lose money, the NBA loses money. And when the NBA, the league, loses money, the owners lose money and when the owners lose money guess what the players lose money well and the owners get pissed and and that's the other thing too is like you know it's like well what what can they do i don't know the devos family as in betsy devos as in the worst secretary of education in the history of the united states works in the trump organ or in the trump administration might as well be the trump organization how about that for a Freudian slip uh but like these people are ultra rich and connected to power like push on push on people like that's what you do when you have money when you have influence and because this is this is why this stuff is effective because if you're the NBA players you have taken this moment where we have established the stakes are you are either fighting racism or you are a racist silence is complicity and you've now put the owners in that spot if you're an owner and you're just sitting there like, I'm not a racist, and you're not doing anything, it's like, yeah, you are. You are, because you're perpetuating the system. You're not taking advantage of what you have, the power that you have to fight against it. So it's not just affecting their bank accounts, Joe. It is putting them out there and hanging them out to dry publicly and basically saying, like, these men who often just hide, like, you're going to get exposed. And that's what the players are doing. The players are exposing the owners who have benefited from this system forever to get their their money and their wealth. And then for many of them, not done anything to give back to communities. I mean, like I I saw this um, this great tweet earlier that talked about how, you know, well, owners owners matched a lot of donations like Joel Embiid gave a huge donation to Black Lives Matter to to some charitable organization um, earlier in the summer. And the owners of the 76ers matched it and you're going well that's great that's awesome Joel Embiid is worth like a half a percent of what those dudes are like yeah and Joel Embiid's rich but these dudes they're they're hedge fund guys they're worth you know 10 figures they're worth Mm. multiple billions of dollars so if you have that much money and all you're doing is matching the millionaires like yeah the millionaires compared to me and you are rich but damn man like I don't think people realize how much a billion dollars is yeah. And so if you got that kind of cash, 
you better be doing a lot more than your players. And if you have the power and the influence that your friends are people like Jared Kushner, who the owners of the Philadelphia 76ers are tight with, you better be doing a hell of a lot more than just giving a couple of dollars and putting out a supportive statement. Yeah, that's that speaks volumes. That speaks tremendous volume. So what's, I mean, as of this morning and, and, and early this afternoon, what's, I guess, the next move for the NBA? Are, are tonight's games postponed? Are they going to halt yeah, indefinitely? Yeah, tonight's games are postponed and they're meeting. I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, you know, it might be that um, that they've made a decision on when they're going to resume, but they're going to re- apparently resume eventually. But here, here's another thing, too, with this, you know, is the, the players decide what they're going to do. A lot of the talk is around, like, how, how do they best use their platform? Are they better off playing versus not playing? Are they better going home and joining the protests? Are they better continuing to play and then using their interviews to talk about this? It takes away their humanity. Like, that's only part of the discussion. It is part of the discussion. And they put that on themselves by saying, like, we are going to play for social justice. When you when They self-establish the stakes, and they're okay with that. But, like, black people are tired right now, man. Like, it's okay that they they might just need a mental health break. And it's going to be different, too. Every player is going through this and going to process this differently. And these guys have been away from their families for almost two months now. And now, as they sit here scared, as they watch another black person on, on video get shot by police, like, well, man, I want to be back with my family. Like, there's a human element to this, too, when you talk about the resumption of play and the consideration for what these men want to do. And I think that is not talked about enough that if all that comes out of this is like they go, you know what? It's not worth it to us. Like we need to be home with our families. Forget the social justice stuff. Like I I need that for my mental. And if any individual player or a bunch of them do this, like that's okay because they're human beings with agency. And yes, it, it you can go, well, that's it. I wish I could do that for my job. Well, sorry, you're not as good at your job as, as they are at theirs and their job pays a lot better. Welcome to capitalism. Welcome to America. Like that's part of the that's part of the gig. That's part of the deal. It's part of the system in which we all stand for, uh, and so or which we all participate in, not necessarily stand for. So, like, there, there's a lot to this, and and I've thought about it a lot, and obviously, I think we've we've just spent quite a bit of time talking about it. Um, but I don't know that there are clear answers because there, what is right is going to be different for everyone, and to try to lump everybody together. Um, I think does a disservice to the individuals, but there also is a point of lumping everybody together to figure out the power piece of like, okay, if we're really in this for the social justice cause, we need to figure out what it is that is going to have the maximum leverage, what's where we can make the maximum change. And that is going to come with some kind of group effort. Um, because in that way there are power in numbers or there is power in numbers. Yeah. Power in numbers that that's strong. And that that's what we need. That is what change is. It's just more than just one person. Because originally it was just it was just the Bucks. It was just the the Bucks standing standing tall and saying we are. Originally it was boycotting, but it is a strike. Tonight's game, and then the rest of the NBA jumped in. And when you have power numbers, it changes things. It changes the dynamic. Yeah, for sure. So real quick on important and interesting before we bring in our guest hub brown uh, who is one of my journalism professors at syracuse this is all happening in the backdrop of the rnc and and i just i don't know like what do you make of that what do you make of of individual labor in terms of nba players like 
using their voice and, and functioning in this way as as the RNC in its whatever it this clusterfuck of a convention is like is happening in the backdrop. Well, I mean, the timing is 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 impeccable. Um, <laughs> for sure, That's one way to put it. Uh, you know, I caught a little bit of Pence last night, uh, our vice president, and he had mentioned that if we vote Biden in, America is not safe. Which I was like, huh? Let's <laughs> what? What's let's 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 focus on what's happening now. And is that a real accurate statement? Like, I don't, not safe. Turn on your TV, dude. Like, we're, we're, we're in the middle of it right now. There's a ton of stuff happening right now that's not healthy for anybody. There's, you know, a race war. We're in the middle of a pandemic, just to name a couple things. So when he said something like that, and we all know uh, Joe Biden has, a, you know, a lot more empathy than Donald Trump, um, I, I didn't, that was a bold statement. And they're coming bold. Like everyone who's who's kind of spoke uh, spoken up during the RNC this week, which by the way, half of it was Trump's family. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're they're really they're they're going for it. They're they're definitely throwing their punches against Joe Biden. Right, and that's just the question: is like, are any of them landing? Because as you said, you just like turn on the TV, man. Like. Hundred eighty thousand people are dead. By the time we vote, two hundred thousand people will be dead from coronavirus. Um, there has been incredible, um, like I don't even want to give into like the chaos narrative because, but there there has been, you know, protest and violence amidst those protests. Um, almost the entire time Trump has been president, like people forget, like this isn't new under the Trump presidency. Like, yeah, it's been more intense and sustained since George Floyd's murder in, in June, but go back to Charlottesville, go back. It's like, we forgot what the first three and a half years of Trump were and they suck too. And a lot of the same shit was happening. It just was more sporadic. Um, and so I think that point is, is extremely well taken Joe and, and well made by you. And the other part of it too is this obsession with law and order like it just sounds so militaristic it sounds so fascist it sounds so authoritarianism or in authoritarianistic i don't know is that a word Mm. it is now um i'm going with it um and, and so it's it's like these authoritarian wet dreams that these guys have and it's just like nah man like we're supposed to be a government by the people for the people of the people and so this idea that you're pushing everybody towards this one guy who can fix it. Oh, President Trump's leadership. It's, it's like, it's all this dear leader stuff that's just, it's frankly like really disturbing. Um, it'd be funny if it wasn't such a serious threat. Um, but it's the obsession with law and order, especially amidst all this that is going on is, is white people come from out of state to be fucking militia members. Like, it's just so it's so separated from reality that it's it's really disturbing joining us now to discuss further he was one of my professors at syracuse university he's now not only continuing to teach but is one of the associate deans at the university at the newhouse school one of the people who taught me joe uh, more about journalism than pretty much anybody uh it's hub brown hub great to see you 
Hey, it's great to see you, man. It's, it's, it's been a while, but it uh, looks like you're, you're uh, doing some really fun, interesting stuff. That's the goal, the whole chasing interesting thing. Uh, that that yeah, is yeah. indeed the goal. Now, I wanted to, as Joe was also a mentor of mine, I wanted to share a story uh, before we dive into the crux of what will be, uh, I think, a fairly important conversation. But it is my favorite Hub Brown story. It is the one where <laughs> I didn't like you very much. And uh, Joe, so in, in uh, BDJ 464, which is the class I had Hub for, uh, which is the reporting class at Syracuse, Hub used to use maybe, in fact, the same recorder he's using right now to record this interview uh, to send us critiques of our reports. And so I would go out in the field and, and do my package, uh, my, my TV piece, and Hub would watch it and he'd give me just all kinds of feedback. This is not quite right. This shot could have been angled a little better. This, you know, maybe a little bit off. And he would just absolutely shred me. And to the point that by the end of this five-minute tape, I was ready to throw my laptop across my room. I remember one time getting one back and just slamming my laptop down after I hit afterwards because I was so mad. And then he always go, but uh, it's really good. So you get an A. Uh, I just, you know, let's tighten it up a little bit. And it was his way of pushing me, saying, like, I know what's inside you, but I'm going to get every ounce of it. And, man, it pushed my buttons to, to the nth degree. He's making you work, man. I love that. Kudos for, to Hub for doing that, man. I, I totally get that. That's awesome. It's a great story. I think it was on this recorder that, I was, that I'm using right now. Um, <laughs> I have, I've said a lot of things to a lot of people on this thing. You have. And I remember when I, we, one of the first times I, I talked to you about that in my postgrad days and you're just sitting there with some new house reception and you're just laughing, dying. You're like, yeah, I knew you were good. So, uh, you know, figured I'd push you a little bit. I'm like, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Makes and, you uh, stronger than ever. You've gotten the intended uh, result there. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. It worked out. I guess it worked out in the end. I agree. Uh, yeah. I agree with that method. Oh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Had, yeah. Of course, you agree with making me angry. Joe, <laughs> you, Joe had I a different you, methodology. Wait, wait, but... You want us to hand things to you? You got to earn it, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, appropriate now that, that I, we're having a conversation, uh, more years than I'd like to admit later, about journalism and about how to report because we – are existing in a fascinating time for journalism. And there's multiple topics I would love to get into here. Um, and I'd like to start with politics. And we are living through a, an administration now that lies at a rate that we have literally never seen before. And I think the media, going back to the election of this current presidential administration, struggled with how to handle that. And I think in the years building up, in the environment that created a world in where we can have this administration even existing, there was a struggle because media, mainstream media is seen as, as more liberal and trying to find the balance between balance and accuracy and what is quote unquote fair. When you, when you, th this is an enormous question, which I'm sure you've, you've talked about a lot in classes and could literally lecture on, but when you think about balance, fairness, accuracy, those big journalistic principles, how do you try to make sense of it all in the current climate? You know, that's not easy at all, trying to make sense of all of this. It's, and especially because it's kind of a moving target. We, we, we have had um, an ongoing conversation around the idea of balance and fairness and truth and how to do it in this environment. 
And at first, I think people were really just trying to escape having to talk about it, you know, just getting out there and doing their stories and, you know, so-and-so says X and, um, and then not really challenging it. And then you began to see people say things like, you know, this person says X without any evidence and you still see that now. And now you see the occasional organization who will basically say, so-and-so says X, but it's a lie. And it took a lot to get there because, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile all of this? You know, a lot of politicians lie. You know, a lot of politicians uh, shade the truth one way or another or, or, or even fake it a little bit. But, um, but yeah, the rate at which um, this particular administration engages in well, pretty much falsehoods or, or, or says things without any evidence, uh, asserts things without any evidence, is, is truly really something. And so they had to come up with a policy. It really forced, I think, journalism organizations to face themselves and say, this is not something that we ever anticipated, that we, we never got to this point. And so we really do have to have a conversation about a different approach, really, to journalism, to news gathering, because right now, what we, the normal things that we do just aren't working. And they, are, and, and they aren't working in that they are not serving the public which is really the whole thing of the whole reason why we're into this in the first place. That's the problem. I think one of the, the, to dive into a, a sect of this, one of the challenges is deciding what is news in the first place, just because someone mm-hmm. says something, yeah. does that inherently make it news? And so when you talk about politicians says X, but I, I think one of the decisions that we have to make as journalists and, you know, people that are still actively practicing journalism, I'm just a, podcast hack, but is because someone in power says something, is that inherently news versus the substance of what they're talking about and how it relates to everyday people? You talk about serving the public. How do you try to reconcile those things? What is news versus what is not just because a powerful person says it? All of news really does come up, you know, come down to a whole balance between the prominence of the ideas and the people saying them, the newsworthiness of it, uh, the impact, the importance, all of those things uh, are very, very important. And so now when you're taking a look at a situation like this, where you might have somebody who's doing news conferences just so that they can get their mug on the air every day and not saying anything of any particular import, now you actually have to stop and say, well, yeah, the person is, is, is famous, is a household name, but they're not saying anything new, you know, or they're rehashing old controversies, rehashing old points of view and assertions and things like that. Now you really have to take a look at the entire depth of things. And so you have, when the president was doing all his, uh, all those COVID news conferences at the end of the day, what you get is people stopping and saying on a day to day, is he saying anything newsworthy here? Is there anything new here? And and at that point, finally, somebody says, well, no, they're not. So you maybe click out of it or, or they'll tell the audience, we're going to stay with this as long as, you know, there are things here that are that are of some kind of news value. And when that's not happening, then we'll come back out of it and we'll do something else. And so it's a minute by minute struggle, really. Um, but news journalists make editorial decisions. That's one of the reasons. Uh, why they're in those positions in the first place. They have to actually make the editorial decisions. And so this is a making editorial decision on the fly. And when you do that, 
sometimes you're going to win that. Sometimes you're going to lose that. But uh, you have to have as a common denominator every single time. Is this something that's informing people? Are people, is this time um, spent well, or is this time being wasted? Uh, you have to figure that part out. And you've got to do it now on a minute by minute basis. So it's a, it's, it's a tough thing. It's, and for the people who are doing this, I, I, you know, I don't envy them. I, I think that it's very, very difficult right now. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly interesting. And I kind of wanted to touch on the social media aspect of it because this happens all the time where you hear and you see people reposting things and sharing information mm -hmm. that is completely false and people then go off on a, on a tyrant and, and, and take in this and consume this information which is so off and so not even to where we need to be or where any kind of truth to it. And then all these ideas spin from that and then they share and they share and this platform of misinformation is spread so widely uh it's detrimenting to to well, to us to people who who you know consume content like this how do we how do we get fellow americans how do we get us our people to kind of i don't know narrow that down how do we instead of just sharing away oh this must be true sharing away how do we kind of just fix that or, or focus more well you know it, it those things have real-time consequences, don't they? I mean, you know, you people are sharing this thing, this meme, or that that um, statement, or those, and sooner or later, uh, enough, you know, after enough sharing of these things, somebody goes busting into a pizzeria and starts shooting it up, you know, and 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 that's you know, that's that's what happened with the QAnon thing, and we have this social media environment, which is kind of rocket fuel for these sort of edge conspiracies out there. These, these people who basically kind of live on conspiracy theory, basically, and people who will gobble it up. A lot of folks are pretty vulnerable to it. And stopping it, getting to the point where you are in a situation where you can actually put the brakes on it or give people better information, there's no magic to that. We, what we need, I think, are campaigns. What we need are, are, are wide public efforts to say, you know, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear as the old song used to say, uh, that you basically go out there and you find, you use various tools to determine whether or not something is true. And this is the thing, we, we, we don't have enough, you know, we really don't have enough people out there who are dedicated to doing that. And there are some efforts, there are organizations that are, that are working to deal with misinformation and disinformation and working to figure out ways to get the message to the public uh, that there are certain things that you can go through to determine whether or not something is true. But they are few and far between. And so um, out, out there in sort of a war for information, the truth is being sort of outgunned sometimes. And we have to find ways to basically inject a lot more energy into the efforts at, um, at giving people the tools to seek the truth. Because a lot of times, I mean, one of the things that, that I think we have to remember here is that the, the, the people really aren't at fault. They're, 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 they are lapping these kinds of things up, but we've also put them in a situation where we've made it hard for them to figure out what's true or not. We've, we've actually, news organizations have done it, advertising organizations have done it, pol you know, you know, political organizations have done it. Everybody has, everybody has um, basically turned up their tools at getting a message out. And now the people who are spreading disinformation out there, 
package their messages in as good a form as people who are spreading out the truth. So there's no real way to do it. So you have to, you have to really, I think, get much more energy into giving people a chance to sort of parse those things out and really make a good determination. It's probably the thing I've spent more time thinking about than anything else is how to break that wall because the people who are spreading the disinformation are telling you that the media is full of liars and to not believe anything they say. And if you're told yeah. that the thing that could be proven true is already false, I don't know how you crack that. Any yeah, ideas? It's really, <laughs> <laughs> It's really hard, especially when you can build alternate realities here through social media and through the computer. Um, I mean, we're working now, actually, um, uh, some of my colleagues at the Newhouse School just um, won uh, part of a very large grant uh, from, uh, from DARPA, the Defense Intelligence Projects um, Agency, basically. Uh, these are the folks who come up with all the biggest high-tech things to do to sort of either conduct warfare or learn when warfare is happening against us. And uh, it's a big project to determine, um, determine all kinds of uh, uh, the origin and management of deep fakes. So we oh, figure wow. out ways, we figure out ways in the metadata of video that you see, figure out how that deep fake takes place. Or you look in, uh, you look at the, the image itself and you see things in the image that are just not up to snuff and you can figure it out that way. If we can, if we can break that and, and get into an algorithm um, where, there are, where we're figuring out what's the real stuff and what's not, uh, then that's a good, that's a way to do that, especially if you turn to the public and show your work. It's kind of like a math problem. You've got to show how you arrived at that answer. And if you can be more open about showing your work, then that's one way I think that the public has a little bit more trust in it. But um, it's going to be, it's going to take research. It's going to take lots and lots of good, strong research to get us to a place where we have a, uh, an algorithm or a method that can instantly take a look at things and determine what is true or not. Yeah, that's, that's real. That is super real. You know, and, and with the election, coming up, you know, right around the corner here, I think we're, I don't know, 70 days away or so, you know, how do we, is so much talk about the U.S. Postal Service and mailing in your ballot compared to showing up to the polls during coronavirus, how do we tell people that what they're hearing on television shouldn't persuade, their, persuade them or be afraid to vote? Because people mm -hmm. literally, they don't know how to now vote for this election because they're being scared what they see on television or what they read online or should they mail in their ballot? Is there going to be funding for the U S postal service? You know, it, will their vote be counted? How do we talk to these people? And it is sometimes it's older people, you know what I mean? It's, it's people, mm, yes. you know, it's not people who are, you know, 65, 75, 85, they don't have, they're in tune to the technology and the stuff that we, you know, that we kind of know and, and, and use on a daily basis. How do we talk to them? Let them know it is safe. And yes, your vote does count and we need you to get out there. That's also tough. And that's also one of those no magic things. You have to give them the tools. One of the things in a disaster that you do with, with folks is, you know, especially when things, stuff's destroyed all around you, those sorts of things. One of the best things you can do is give people something to do. Give them something where they can very easily say, oh yes, if I do X, Y, and Z, then that at least gets me a little bit closer. And so there are organizations right now that exist that are informing people of what they need to do to get their ballot 
in on time, uh, what they need to do to, um, you know, what, what the dates are for, you know, the deadline dates for mail-in ballots or absentee ballots or those sorts of things. Information like that is important. Information that gives perspective is also important. A lot of the times people don't seem to realize that you take a look at what the, the number of ballots that are, that are going to be mail-in ballots this year and compare that to the number of Christmas cards that are sent in any season. And the Christmas cards just dwarf the number of mail-in <laughs> ballots that are going to be going in. By a factor of magnitude, we send more Christmas cards in the mail and they get there on time over that, over that short weekend of just Christmas and New Year's. Uh, you'll see that. And so people need to basically get more information that gives them the tools so that they can make a decision about how to vote and some perspective that gives them at least a sense of the size of, of the volume of mail ballots or those sorts of things that the Postal Service is capable of handling. Yeah, the storytelling element, I think, is huge. It's what we, in theory, do best is, is tell stories as a news media. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question on this topic for bouncing to, mm-hmm. to one more. And the big, giant version of this question would simply be, like, what is media's responsibility to democracy? Um, but what I mean by that, and in specific to politics, is where do we draw the line between what media should do to serve the public and then crossing into what would be considered true activism? What is the responsibility of the media, of the things that they need to do to be serving the public, while other things you go, hey, look, that's not really the media's job? You know, that's a good question. That's a great question, because that's one thing that a lot of journalists are being forced to look at right now. We're all looking at news a different way. We're looking at news gathering differently now in the midst of everything that we've had here. Everything, all, all of the sort of disinformation campaigns here that we've been seeing, the fact that we've been showered with information from Russia that we didn't know was from Russia, all kinds of different things that, that are out there. So, we, so this is tough. How do you determine, you know, what the line is? You know, what is activism? I would submit to you that journalism is a pro-social activist thing in the first place, that it already takes a side, that, 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 that reporting the truth and getting as much truth to people as you possibly can is actually taking a side. It, it is taking the side of people need more information to be free and self-governing. That's an opinion. Now that opinion came from the founding fathers, but it is in fact an opinion that people in, this, in our society need good, strong, truthful information in order to keep themselves free and self-governing. People don't look at it that way. They've never looked at it that way. They sort of thought that was sort of a base position, but now you have, we, we, this is something we should not take for granted. Now we're in a situation where we actually have to say, this is what we're doing. And if, and if that is, if, if we say right off the bat, you know, we think a society is better off when it has more information. Then from there, basically saying we can take a position on whether or not something that you are being told is true. That's not a very big leap anymore. Mm. It's not a very big leap from that. And so those kinds of things 
are going to be very, very important going forward is that we actually have to decide what's, what is a pro-social act, a pro-democracy act. We, you know, there's a lot of things that we say, well, you shouldn't take a side on this way or the other thing way. We don't usually normally take a side on democracy. Is it good or bad? <laughs> that's not, that's not something that we I, just for the record, say, I'm on the good side. I just side. want that out yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm kind of on the good side too, you know? Yeah. So Thanks. but we, yeah. the whole point of view of the way we report stuff is that we start from the premise that democracy is a good thing. Well, that's taken aside. So let's stop pretending that we are so, you know, so driven to this sort of illusion of impartiality that we have to take things like misinformation, like a politician who lies constantly and say that if we say that he lies constantly, we're taking the side, you know? Yeah, we are, yeah. you know, get over it the side of the truth. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and it segues well into what I want to talk about next. And this was the, the part of the conversation that immediately made me go, I need to talk to Hub about this because it gets into how we teach journalists to do their job. And it's specific to policing. And for years, the way journalism has been taught is when a crime happens, you go to the crime scene, you talk to the police, you might talk to the public information officer, and you generally wind mm -hmm. up reporting what they say. Uh, you might yes. try to talk to some witnesses, but uh, the most accurate information is going to be coming from the public information officer, the PIO, from the police department. I think we well mm -hmm. now know that police departments should not inherently and implicitly be trusted. And I would imagine that dramatically changes how we teach journalists to approach anything involving police from a petty theft to a shooting done by a police officer. And I intentionally there do not use the phrase officer involved shooting, which is a police term. So as, as you, yes. as someone who sets, helps set a curriculum for journalists, how have you in even the last couple of years revamped how we teach journalism's involvement with the police? I think that that's very, very good. I think absolutely we have to change that approach. And, uh, and, a lot, and a lot of us have been changing that approach. We don't cover, you know, the funny thing about covering the police is that in the past, in, in the years running up to this, we haven't covered the police with the kind of skepticism that we cover, you know, the, the county board or, or the legislature or, or anything like that, whereas a political body and there are all kinds of different versions of the truth as basically put forward by that political body and you get different kinds of perspectives. Well, we never do that with the police. You're absolutely right. What we do is we read news releases from them. We listen to them as they talk about different kinds of things and we put it on the air pretty much unchallenged, sometimes unedited. Sometimes basically yeah. that news release just goes on the air. It's a really, it's a really terrible practice. And add to that now, add to that the fact that um, in a lot of places, those police departments have social media presences. So now you have basically what, what, you, what you have there is state media. And we really do need to adopt a much more circumspect position around state-generated media, government-generated media. That's what we're here for, to be a watchdog on government, on the activities of government. And the police are an arm of government. And 
The way we get to better reporting around police activity is to remember that and to cover them like we cover other arms of government. And that becomes tricky. Um, and this is something I can sympathize with as someone who covered sports, right? You need to be critical of the people that you cover while also knowing that you need relationships to break news. You need relationships to be maintained. As you teach the next generation of reporters, how do you teach them to foster relationships while also still being skeptical of the people that they're fostering relationships with? You're absolutely right. When it comes to it, the sports world is a real good example of that. Athletic departments, coaches, controlling access. I've always said to people for years now that one of the things that you need to express to sources when you're really covering an important story is, I'm going to do this story whether you talk to me or not. And one of the things that I'm going to put in that story if you don't talk to me is that I tried to talk to you and you wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> That's one of the things that that police departments need to do is I'm not taking your word for this. I'm going to get other perspectives. And if it's something where you're involved and a member of the public is hurt or other things have taken place and, and people are injured or, or, or in all kinds of bad shape because of it, I'm going to hear from some other people. I'm going to hear from a lot of other people. So you can get your side into this story if you want. I will listen to you and I will put that in there. But you're not talking to me is not going to stop me from telling the story. Yeah, yeah. I love that. If you were working in a news organization right now and actively reporting, I think it would be very different than if you were doing that a decade ago because we have stopped mm -hmm. uh, ignoring the fact that race is something that is a cross-section of all things in American life. Uh, for those listening, if you cannot tell, Hub is a black man. Last time I looked. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at you right now on a Zoom call. Still, still checks out. Proper amount of okay, melanin uh, to be to, to meet that classification. <laughs> and I think for all of us, you know, like I've made it no secret. I'm a Democrat. People ask me, like, do you want to get into political reporting? No, I, I'm if I get into the political space, it would be in an activism way. But it, it is there are hundreds and thousands of people all across this country who are reporters and they are also citizens and they come to that job with their own personal backstory, their own personal lens. And I'm just curious, if you were an active reporter right now, how do you think the entirety of your story, of your life experience, would affect your reporting for better or for worse? Wow, that's deep. <laughs> Very deep question. Um, and, 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 and a really good one. And it's something that I think that all of us who are out there teaching journalism and all of us who, all, all the folks who are doing reporting, doing writing, should actually reflect on that from time to time. How, how, how does that which makes you up affect how you're going to report? And it does, it does, it, it absolutely does. And people will say, well, because you're African-American, because you're black, you're gonna report a certain way. That's not a guarantee. It might be a likelihood that there might be some things that I might have in my mind when I'm talking about this that other people may not. And that's, and that's because of life experiences. That's because of life experiences. The people who say that, 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 that this whole systemic racism thing is, is blown up and out of proportion, I, my answer usually is, if it's 11 o'clock at night and you're trying to get home and you're in your car and the, and the police roll up behind you and the lights come on, would you rather be you or me? Because at that point, that's when you're going to have to figure out 
how you're going to act in those moments going forward. And most of the time, the way we've seen things develop in this country, those are two distinct, different scripts of how to act during that particular time. So it does make a difference who you are. It does make a difference what your perspective is. And hopefully you're using that perspective to, to really open up the toolbox more and, and do more things to report and, and find different ways to spark curiosity about things. One of the things that people seem to underestimate about the, about the notion of where you're from and the perspective uh, that you might have is that it does give you a sense of what to be curious about and what you might need to learn. You know, my perspective as a man gives me a set of things that I know, but it also sets up an agenda of things that I don't know and that I need to read and listen about listen to, listen to women, listen to people. I'm a cisgender man. Listen to people who are not uh, basically in the gender binary. People who are coming at this from all kinds of different ways. Listen, because there's a lot of experiences that, that I have had that um, inform me, but there are experiences that they have had that could inform me too if I'm actually willing to listen. That's the problem. Some people are not willing to listen. So those things are, I think those things are very important. They're a matter of perspective. They give us where we need, you know, some of the things that, that uh, we need to help ask questions, but it also sets that agenda. And, and if you're humble enough and you need to be humble uh, to, to know that you don't know every doggone thing out there, then you might learn a whole bunch of new things. Amen. Thanks yeah. for teaching me as a student and thanks for continuing to teach me till right now. Yeah, and, and thank you for making Craig work when he was a student and not <laughs> hand it to him. So big up to you, Hub Brown. Oh, thank my you. Goodness. <laughs> it's great to talk to you guys. This is fun. Yeah, this is cool. <laughs> I, I, like, I, like, I like your ending part. Ask questions at the end of the day. Be humble enough. Have enough self-awareness. And if you don't know something, ask questions. Simple as that. Yeah. And yeah. Sometimes you don't even know what you need, need to know. And... Questions are the start. Indeed. Indeed. This was yep. awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Hub. Man, it's great to see you again. Take care. Awesome stuff from Hub and Joe. Now we get to switch gears. And I mean, Hub made us feel a little bit better uh, for sure, but yeah. always try to end the show on a positive note. Look good, feel good, do good. We give you something to watch, something to literally make yourself feel better in the health and wellness space, and then something to do to uh, make sure that you're making a difference in the world. So uh, our look good this week, I'll, I'll start because uh, it starts with my day job. Assuming that sports continue and, and there's uh, not a labor strike in our league, uh, we announced this week that we're coming back, baby. NWSL, fall series. We're going to have at least four games uh, starting on September 5th, and uh, I'm pretty pumped about it. Uh, to, to not have... Soccer between now and next April would have really been a bummer. And um, I know our players are just crazy excited and it's good to, it always just brings me joy to see them motivated and to see that, that carrot being dangled out there. Like, Hey, you get to play soon. And I love watching them play. So I'm pretty pumped about it. And it's the best soccer league in the world. And everybody should watch games will be on uh, CBS, CBS all access and Twitch. So make sure you check your local listings for details. Nice. Uh, 
One piece of uh, content I saw this week was Emmanuel uh, Acho talking to Roger Goodell. Uh, Emmanuel, a former NFL player, uh, he's been doing these series uh, basically t- talking about uh, having uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And he brought in Roger Goodell, and I thought it was fascinating. Uh, Roger Goodell, what seemed to me, admitting that he he and the league wished they had taken the Colin Kaepernick situation differently. You, know? you think so, doctor. <laughs> uh, years ago, uh, which was, I think, about four years ago, actually. when, I, when I, It was four years down. ago yesterday uh, yeah. that he kneeled for the first time, which is crazy that it was four years to the day that uh the nba players struck yeah so that was uh that was something to see and that's kind of circulating on social media if uh if you haven't seen that yet yeah Acho's a smart dude and uh he's done a really great job with that series uh all right so that's look good feel good joseph you get the uh you get the first shot at it here yeah well you had tell me you were you were starting to eat more vegetables uh into your diet, which you know I'm a big fan of. I'm a pescatarian, and and I don't, I haven't had red meat in, in probably five, five years now. Um, and I always encourage more plants into the diet. So uh, I think you're doing the right thing. And let's let's be honest, Craig. It makes you feel good eating properly and stuff from the ground makes you feel overall pretty darn good. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, that's my number one uh, piece of nutrition advice to every single client I have uh, is, you know, hey, like, what can I do to what can I do to be more fit? Uh, eat more vegetables yeah. like, f- because they're low calorie. They're high in nutrients. They will fill you up uh, and they're great for your body. And uh, it'll help you if you're trying to lose weight. Uh, it'll help you eat less because you'll feel full. You'll be satiated. So I always tell people, like, just eat more vegetables. You're not going to get fat off broccoli uh, or spinach or whatever. So uh, just don't douse them in a million oils and shit. Just, yeah, that's know. the trick. If you can have them raw, raw, you know, that's the way Even to do better. it. Even yeah. better. Uh, eat more vegetables. It. That's my number one piece of advice, and it's Joe's number one piece of advice this week. Look at us in simpatico. Uh, on a little bit deeper note than eat more vegetables, um, I saw a great meme going around fitness Instagram this week that was basically like, if you can uh, afford $200 on a fit tee, you can afford $200 for a personal trainer. And for all the money that people try to spend on shortcuts, if you would just hire a professional to work with, and it doesn't have to be a trainer, it could be a nutritionist, whatever, whatever piece of your fitness and and health and wellness space, it could be a therapist, whatever piece in your health and wellness game could use a professional boost, don't buy a shortcut, make an investment in yourself. I agree with that. That's my feel good for the week. There is... Uh, there's truth in a lot of that, and people expect shortcuts when it comes to health and wellness and getting into shape. There is no shortcut. There's no pill. You know, there's there's work, and work has to be done. Um, and it has to be done smartly. So hire an effing trainer. Yeah. By the way, plug your plug your business, which you are, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a trainer. Uh, I have a fitness podcast too, which is sweet. Uh, train with the best podcast available anywhere. This one is. Uh, but no, I mean, I've got programming online. If people want it, you go to HoffmanShow.com, click on online training, and uh, you can, you can get programming for me. Uh, I also do online coaching. I do coaching in person if you're in the Northern Virginia or DC area. So yeah, like there's a reason, like I know so much more now than I did five years ago when I started doing this. So, yeah, you know, like, and I was someone who worked out and was in gyms my whole life. Like the people in the fitness industry are so freaking smart 
uh, about this and we know so much more than we did a decade ago, two decades ago, whatever. Um, so if you're just like going to the gym mindlessly lifting, like even just a couple of sessions with a trainer to refresh yourself, I think is, is 100% worthy. Um, all right, do good this week. Very simple, Joseph. I'm going to give you a phone number. Do you know what the phone number 202-224-3121 is? Mm, is that my local congressperson? Uh, it is not just your local congressperson. It is all the Congress people. That is the U.S. Capitol switchboard, which is how you would get in touch with your local congressman. 202-224-3121. And the reason I would like this week's Do Good to be call your congressman is ultimately what we're trying to do with all this, all the things that we've talked about today, is to generate change. The people that do that are the lawmakers, are the legislatures. These are the people in power. And they work for us. They are public servants. That is what they do. They are responsible to us. And because of that, even though there's a lot of crazy messed up things in how they get elected, gerrymandering, voter suppression, all this, where it has gotten to the point where many of them get to choose their voters more than their voters choose them, they still are responsible to us and thus responsive to us. There is a breaking point. And so if you know, this switchboard and, and these congressional offices are quiet for weeks, then all of a sudden they get 100 calls in an hour on one topic. That topic's going to be brought up in their meetings. That topic's going to get attention. And they're going to go, oh my God, if we don't do X, then these people are going to be upset and try to replace us. This, this is a job for them. They no, Nobody runs for Congress and is like, eh, I'm just going to do this for a couple of years. No, this becomes, this becomes their vocation. So uh, call your congressman. Uh, there's a bunch of ways to do it if you don't want to call. Uh, and by the way, when you call, there's a bunch of places you can go to get scripts to make it really easy and effective uh, so you don't have to think about what you want to say. Um, you can just say like, you know, hey, my name is. I. It helps if you're calling your congressman uh, because then you're a constituent. Um, I'm a constituent from here. I'm calling today about X. I would like you to do Y. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, there's also there's a, a great thing called the resist bot if you prefer a text uh, and that text can turn into a formulated email uh, so you can write your congressman uh, but in digital form and I like I will write my congressman probably once a month or so um, on some issue Jerry Connolly is my representative and I always get a response from his office this is what we're doing about this and then if it's something that requires more follow-up um, I've done that before too where they sent me the the form letter back and I was like I don't really like this response can you tell me more about this and then a staffer will typically respond to you if you have a good a good representative and if you don't then you know you have to vote them out so yeah. call your call or write your congressman that is this week's do good there it is. And, and something that matters to you, you know, pick something. It's a lot of stuff that people want to, you know, get fixed or work on. It, 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 more than, it, it could be more than just police reform. It could be health care, housing, you know, your local park, national parks. There's a ton of stuff. So, you know, find stuff that matters to you and take action. Yep. And it doesn't have to be your congressman either. It could be your city council member because uh, a lot of times those types of people, your police chief, those super hyper local representatives have as much impact on your life as the senators and, and U.S. representatives and the president for a couple more months. All right. Uh, that'll be the show for today. Uh, I know it was a heavy one. I know it was a long one. So appreciate it if you made it this far. Uh, we'll be back at it again next week. Joseph, any parting wisdom for the people? Uh, you know, just... We're going through a lot as, as a community, as a whole, as a nation. Keep your head high. Uh, reach out to people you love. Reach out to your friends. Keep checking on people. Call your 
Congress, man or woman, demand change, and keep striving, baby. Amen. We'll see you next week on Chasing Interest.